0: Well, I know you're excited. The bookcase is back. I'm Charles Gibson.
1: And I'm barely containing my excitement, and I'm Kate Gibson.
0: Anyway, we do welcome (laughs) you back, as we do every week. Today's podcast is going to require a bit of explanation. Uh, We might, as I do in my mind, entitle it Kate Goes Solo. Kate called me a number of weeks ago and said, What do you know about book festivals and book fairs? And I had to admit, uh, as I often do on many subjects, that I didn't know anything about book festivals and book fairs. And she said, well, there's one in Brooklyn and they exist in a lot of cities. And apparently a lot of authors come together and people can come in and listen to them talk and buy their books. And I'm sort of curious to experience one. So I said, okay. And it was occurring on a weekend when I couldn't go. She came into town, went to the Brooklyn Book Fair, and Kate, what happened? Well, first,
1: I, I, I blessed my parents uh, with with their presence by crashing at their apartment. It was really, it's an amazing thing, a book festival. It's a place where book nerds come together. And it turns out there's a lot of us. And um, there's lots of different sessions. Like for instance, one of the sessions for the Brooklyn Book Festival focused on jazz and poetry and how they're related. One focused on books about the hula hoop and books about games. And I assume there was hula hooping at the session, although I cannot verify that with my own experience. And frankly, if you've ever watched me hula hoop, you're very thankful <laughs> for that. Um, But also I got the amazing experience of sitting in a room at the Center for Fiction, who were nice enough to give us a beautiful conference room. It's a combination sort of library and bookstore and not-for-profit. And they gave us a beautiful room and authors sort of came and, and we would visit. And one of the authors that I talked to was a woman named Clavis Natera, who's written a book called Neruda on the Park. And she's Dominican and she She's fantastic. And she was at the Brooklyn Book Festival. So it works out really well, by the way, if you host a book podcast and you just like wanna be the center of the wheel and you just wanna have people come visit you. It's a great gathering of authors so you can, you know, not to use the metaphor, but kill a lot of birds with just the one stone. But anyway, Clávis Natana has written this amazing book called Neruda on the Park. And I really wanted to talk to her because it seems to me that it was a wonderful writing of, as I mentioned last week, gentrification, really different take on writing about gentrification from Sadiq Fofana, which I loved, but also the exploration of the issue of first-generation families who come to this country and the way that the unique way that children have to support their parents when they are navigating this country in first generation families. And so this book struck a lot of chords with me, even though it doesn't necessarily relate to my personal experience. And it turns out also, she's just a delightful
0: interview. So what what did you come away knowing about book festivals or book fairs? And I gather many, many people know a lot about these things we just didn't happen to because we're relatively new to this and uh, we're sort of figuring it out as we go along so what did you learn about book fairs is this primarily to show off the authors to whomever shows up is it primarily for them to sell their books because i can't imagine you know it'd be a huge number of books that they would sell at a fair like this how many people were were there? Could you tell? And how many authors were involved? I'm sort of curious about it. And as I say, many people probably know all about book fairs that occur in their own neighborhoods or in cities near them. But but I don't.
1: It's interesting. It feels like a combination of an intellectual gathering and the world's largest convention about books. So bookstores can have booths there. For instance, our friend Otto Penzler had a booth there. So New York bookstores were big there. There were a lot of independent booksellers that had booths there. So, you know, there's a hall where you can go and visit and visit with publishers and take a look at their wares and talk to them about what's coming up. So it's, you know, industry insiders, but it's also just for the general public to pick up books. So you can go and you can sort of browse that way, but you can also attend these amazing, like I say, intellectual forums where writers interview other writers about all sorts of different things like horror writing or writing about recent history or, you know, reckoning with personal history through memoir. And different writers whose writing sort of vaguely relates get to sit around and talk about themes and topics that relate to either their genre or their art. And it's It's really cool. My guess is there were a few hundred people there. And it just, it feels like, I I remember feeling sort of sad when we talked to Politics and Prose and they talked about how contentious bookstores have become two different points of view, divided and protesting one another. And in some ways I think book festivals are a great open
0: forum. Maybe they are what bookstores were, sadly. So is this a one day event or was it a multi-day event? It was a multi-day event. And it goes on from, what, early afternoon or late morning through the evening so that there are lots and lots of author exposure to public who want to listen to either a panel or an individual author?
1: Yes, and actually there was one day that was geared just towards kids writing and young adult writing so that you could go if you just specialized in that. So there's really something for everybody if you love books at these festivals. It's really cool.
0: And how many authors would you guess were actually in attendance at the festival
1: oh dozens and dozens
0: really over the three days
1: yeah if you go to the festival website they list the authors alphabetically that are going to be there and you'd be really surprised i mean everybody from jennifer egan to our friend sadiq fofana to Esmeralda santiago who won the big award this year the brooklyn book festival gives a big award to a writer that really represents the best of brooklyn there's all different kinds of genres and sometimes there are days that specialize but really it it runs the gambit.
0: And you came halfway across country to attend this one, but it turns out, I didn't know that there are book festivals, book fairs in lots and lots and lots of cities.
1: Yes. Everywhere, and some of them focus on different things. We talked to uh, Blue Bicycle, who sponsors or helps to sponsor a young adult festival called the Y'all Festival
0: down in Charleston, South Carolina.
1: And so there's all sorts of festivals that focus on all sorts of interests, and then there's this one which was just really big. And literally, I think there was even a session on uh, on law writing. I mean, it can be that specialized, or it can be the, you know, just one about horror writing. There was one I think called Dial H for Horror, so it was really cool.
0: Well, well, if there was a session on books on hula hoops it, it obviously got pretty specialized i can't imagine that there's that there are too many tomes on the subject of hula hoops which i thought actually disappeared many years ago but maybe people are still hooping uh, I, I don't know anyway clavis Natera, one of the authors you talked to this book neruda on the park i read because you said you liked her had not heard of her before reading this book and maybe it's not well known but it certainly is an interesting premise to it. It's a daughter and a mother, a mother who's trying to save her neighborhood from gentrification as some all-expense condos or all-expensive condos are being built in the area. And her daughter, who's a lawyer, a first-generation American lawyer, who uh, takes up with the developer of the condos. And it does create some tensions in and of itself, and it is a good story about uh, the differences in generations as they mature as Americans. And it does give a good sense of the Dominican community in New York. So, you talk to Clavis Natera, and here is Kate's conversation as Kate goes solo (laughs) with Clavis (laughs) Natera.
1: It's a pleasure to have you in the bookcase. I'm really excited to talk to you on um, the park. I loved the book. I want to start by asking you about sort of the unwritten character in the book, No Thought Park, give you an opportunity to sort of tell me what your vision
2: of that neighborhood is and tell me a little bit about what's happening there. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. You know, When I was thinking about Nother Park and I was thinking about constructing a neighborhood, a fictional neighborhood for my book, the first goal I had was to combine all of the neighborhoods where I've lived and where I've loved. And I wrote most of this book looking out of a window of a luxury condo where I had bought my first apartment in New York City. And so a lot of the early versions of this book happened while I was looking at the park. And there was a great deal of development happening. My building was the first building that went out, but very quickly, they demolished all the buildings around there. And so over the years that I was first writing this book, I was looking at and living through the noise and the disturbance that it means to live in a development community.
1: I wanted to ask you about the mother-daughter relationship between Yusebián and Luz, which is such a central, I mean, it is the central part of the book. I'm not a first generation family. You are a first generation family because parents end up relying so much on their children when they move to a new country uh, to translate for them, to help them figure out the system. Is that a relationship that you've seen a lot where the parents and the kids essentially feel like they made each other?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, first of all, I love mother-daughter stories. Like, I just think there's just so much fraughtness to be had in this relationship where I just feel like it's very hard to be honest and truthful. And especially if there is love, right? Because there are mother-daughter relationships where there isn't a lot of love. But I am especially as- Especially interested in investigating relationships where there's a lot of love and how love can really be a great source of blindness for people. And so, yeah, I mean, growing up, a lot of the relationships I saw, especially my own, I mean, I remember going with my mother, you know, she, my mother got injured because of her job and she had like a workers' comp case. And I remember going with her, like helping get the lawyer, this is after college. And we went to the court and they were having this conversation about whether or not she would continue to get compensation benefits. And my mom is smiling the whole time, you know, because she's like, oh, this is like a routine meeting. Of course, they're going to continue her benefits because she was injured. But there had been an issue where like her insurance was disrupted. She couldn't go, you know, she couldn't go get medical care. And then because of that, it was like, are you really sick if you're not getting medical care regularly? So she ends up without benefits. But there's no opportunity for me to tell her during the conversation. So as we're walking out... And I'm, like, feeling this dread because I'm like, oh, my goodness. And, like, the lawyer's doing whatever she can do. And then I explained to my mother that she had lost her benefits. And it was, like, this plummeting feeling for her, like... You know, and that happened all the time. I mean, I was the one calling a lot of times me and my siblings to call her out sick to work whenever she needed to go see a doctor. Any issues that happened throughout our childhood. And I think I'm especially fascinated by this sense that we have as immigrant children of the obligation to like pay back our our parents. And I I don't think that's so unusual. I think a lot of people that grow up working class or whose parents have had to struggle quite a bit to create a path for themselves feel that sense of weight and responsibility. But I think, especially within immigrant communities, I think that sense of obligation can really drive us to not be true to our desires or our dreams. Very often we are placed in a position where we feel like, well, let me just make money so that I can make my parents' lives easier. Versus what I saw a lot going to college was like the parents were always making a path for the children and making it easier. So there's a really interesting inversion that I think Because that's what we see in the book. In the book, it's like there's this sense of like the growing tension between these two women being like, well, you owe everything to me. And it's like a mother saying to the child and the child saying, but you wouldn't be anything without me. Like, I am the reason that you... get up every morning like what else is (laughs) going on in your life but loving me and taking care of me you know and so I think that that to me it's so interesting to be like the ways in which we rely on each other for purpose and for ambition right and the ways in which we can just in the course of loving our parents the way that that can really help us be strong and face hostility in the workplace you know face hostility in the world and I think it happens for both these women
1: where did this book start for you? Did it start with a character? Did it start with the story of gentrification? Did it start with the neighborhood? What was the first thing that visited you where you're like, yeah, I have to do this?
2: Well, it definitely starts with character for me. And when I started writing this book, it was at the heels of a failed book. So, you know, I, I wrote a thesis at NYU when I was doing my MFA program and had tried to sell it and it, the book didn't sell. And I was really quite heartbroken. And so I started writing this book And it was going to be a book that I was not even going to put my name on it. Like it was going to be like total chick lit. And I was like, I'm going to make so much money. I'm going to be a millionaire. And then I'm going to get to write my weird books that nobody will want to buy. And so so the first version of this book was like, I even came up with my pen name. It was going to be Chloe Navarro. So that I could still have the same initials. Um, And so my alter ego, Chloe, was like writing this sexy book about this young woman that comes home And she was younger in in earlier versions of this. She had just come home from college and was going to law school. And it was really about like her mother carrying forward this crazy scheme of crimes um, to stop the development of this luxury building in her community and then lose, you know, the main character in that version of the book was just like falling in love and having lots of sex. I thought that the characters couldn't be as complicated. As what I know about my community and about womanhood. And so a lot of, you know, my earlier attempts in the book. It was to keep the book sexy and to not really touch the kind of sorrow and the the sadness and the rage that I think lives in a lot of our lives. And so, you know, in some ways, the entry point to my own life into the book isn't in terms of characters or in terms of the storyline. I mean, I did not come up with a crime spree to stop (laughs) gentrification in my community. What I think I really was able to tap into was an emotional truth about what it means to sacrifice and what it means to have this desire to protect and to love and for it to, like, go left. And I think there's just quite a lot of humor, I think, in my own life when I look at people and when I really pay attention to the ways in which people contradict themselves all the time, the ways in which we have this desire to do, you know, A, but then we always do the opposite of that, you know, in order to achieve it. And I just, I I find myself really fascinated by like the human psychology aspect of it and so that's a lot of like my own personal experience was like the pain of almost losing a child for me personally because I had some some issues that I went with with my child that it really helped to open up to me the ways in which I hadn't been truthful about Eusebia and her loss and her trauma and so being able to say well you can't write a book unless you put all of it in it both the sad parts and the funny parts.
1: Well, and I want to ask you about that because I think you may win the award for longest time writing a book. So what, how many years did it take you to write this book?
2: 15 years. Yeah. It was 15 years.
1: You know, that is a big, I mean, everybody changes within a year, two years, three years, but you wrote this over 15 years. I would love for you to talk about how the book I mean, you've talked a little bit about how it started and the changes that it went through, but how did you change as an author over those 15 years and how did you bring those changes to the book?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the most significant change that happened to me as a human being is that I became a mother. And so it was a very drastic difference between my late 20s when... I had no interest in being a mother. I absolutely had made a decision not to have children. I was working a full time job and I was really, my career was very successful in the insurance industry. (laughs) And so I had grown, I had been growing and achieving a great deal of success while my life was changing. I mean, I fell in love and I had children, and having children really also opened my eyes up to a lot of like the complexities of what it means to want everything for your family and the ways in which you would be willing to do insane criminal things for your children, right? Like there's very little that I wouldn't do in real life.
1: Elizabeth Strout, who we just interviewed not too long ago, said, I love my daughter pathologically. And I think that's, I have two kids and I feel that way where I'm like, I'm a little insane uh, about how much I love you.
2: Yeah. And it's that to me, that was like a really interesting entry point into the psychology of these characters because for me, I mean, the easiest character to write was Luz because she's an upwardly mobile young woman who's working in a pretty complex environment and she's trying to keep up with everybody. And so that for me was like pretty simple and straightforward character to write in. But like the storyline for her, it's really going from like this idea of individual exceptionalism, which is kind of the fabric of American society and like when at all costs, largely... By neglecting your family and your obligations to your community. I mean, a lot of what we need to do is to compete, compete, compete to be successful. Or at least that's often the way that I experienced it. I remember like within my own life, looking around and understanding as a writer that I wanted my writing to be a path to social change Mm -hmm. and really thinking about whatever happens with the book, whether it sells or not, really thinking that there is a way in which we can inspire people through like being really honest on the page about what it means to suffer and what it means to love and what it means to feel joy and sex you know and what it means to eat delicious food like to create a life that's really full and alive on the page to me can really help both affirm for people who are part of that community and illuminate for people who aren't part of that community what it means to be part of that community and so Probably the biggest change that happened to me as a writer is recognizing that I was much more dedicated and optimistic about the world and and the role that letters and literature can play in creating social change. And that's what I hope the book does. It's like help to create conversations where there has been silence or to help to illuminate what has been shrouded in darkness. We've talked about
1: Lewis. We've talked about Eusebia. There's this third character in the book that get their own... I, I actually want to refer to them as a single person, even though they're not a single person. Tell me about the tongues. Tell me about the purpose that they serve in the book. And when, in the 15 years, did the tongues become a part of the novel?
2: Yeah, so the tongues are a part of the novel from the very beginning because these are like triplets and they're older women. They're meant to be like quite older than Luz and her mother. And they're like chismosas, you know, they're like these bochincheras who sit in front of the building and who are always keeping tabs on everybody. And they do not like Luz, Okay, They think Luz is just a messy, messy mess, ungrateful person. Yeah, so they were part of the story from the beginning and there was actually a version of this book that was probably the second or third version of the book that was all from their perspective in like really? first plural yes it was all from their perspective. I oh, haven't. I want to yeah. <laughs> read that draft, too. I want to read that draft, too. It's very good. I mean, they were they were a little bit more mystical. And really, I mean, I love Greek tragedies. I love the Greek chorus. Yes. And so for me, like creating, and also I don't really describe the women. And they very often speak as a we, even to Luz and even to Eusebia. And so that sense of like one body with three heads to me is also kind of, you know, evoking that that sense of, like, the Greek tragedies and, like, women as mythical beings. But what's interesting is even though
1: they're sort of not defined separately and they serve the purpose of the Greek chorus, they do, I mean, they are a nuanced character. Like, they aren't... I mean, they aren't just bad. They aren't just good. They are lots of different things.
2: Yeah. I was thinking a lot about the lens of womanhood through the book. And there were a couple of things that I wanted to do. Like, I want to celebrate older women because I just don't think that we see women in their 70s in literature as like complex beings. And I wanted my book to be about womanhood and about, like, intergenerational struggles. Like, how do we reach towards solidarity when we're all blinded, in a way, by, like, the patriarchy, you know? And it's like, blah blah the patriarchy. But, like, I really believe that. Like, I believe that so often. We're, like, you know, trying to help each other achieve freedom. And, like, you know, I look at my grandmother who passed away two years ago and the ways in which she was so powerful and so flawed. And, you know, for me, I wanted to like put that in the book and I wanted to create these characters who, you know, who have the history of this community of activism, but who have not shared it because they don't think young people are worthy. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, and, and their focus is really loose because they see so much potential in her but they're also really funny. Well, and a lot
1: of women in the community look at Luz's choice to sort of step step out of the rat race and do something fulfilling. I think they look at that as self-indulgent, as somebody who went from a fast-track career in the insurance industry to, guess what, I'm going to be a writer. Did you get similar reactions from your family? Were they like, huh?
2: What I think is really interesting is that, I mean, for An immigrant community, right, for people who have survived so much hostility. And I'm lucky that in my own life I haven't faced violence, but I know people who have. And so the idea of rest as revolution, the way that we think of it, is absurd, you know what I mean? Like, what (laughs) the hell are you talking about, taking a break to figure out a purpose-filled life? So, yeah, I mean, I'm lucky because I've had a lot of support from my family. I quit my corporate job, And I, you know, I've been doing very well. And when I decided to quit, it was, you know, during the Great Resignation. I mean, I just had young kids and I was so close with this book. I mean, I had my dream agent. We were working on these revisions. At that point, I was getting up at three and four o'clock in the morning because like everything shrunk. Right. And so I just realized that it was just one of these things where like it just wasn't going to happen for me if I wasn't able to like choose myself and choose this book. I remember the women at my job, a lot of the women that I worked with, again, who i mean. I mean, a lot of people didn't know I was a writer. Some of my employees knew I was a writer because I would take time off to go on writing retreats and conferences and things like that. But I remember one of my colleagues who, you know, she's a queer woman and has three children. And I remember like we went to lunch and she was like, do you think this is the right decision for your family? And, you know, like we weren't that close for her to be like calling me out of my name. Right. But I felt in that moment, like this is what most people think when a woman decides or anybody really decides as an adult to take a big risk. Like, you know, I'm going to go be an artist. I'm going to go be a writer.
1: Oh, absolutely. I quit my job right before the pandemic. That made my parents um, really, really happy. I assume that you don't want your future books to take 15 years. So... (laughs) What is your process now?
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, I'll tell you my, the fact is that when I came back really seriously into trying to make this book happen about four or five years ago, um, I realized that I had had this fantasy about what it means to be a writer, which was really based on a life that isn't mine. Of taking care and time and only being a novelist. I mean, even though when I was in college, I wrote a lot of short stories. You know, I'd been told that there's no way to build a career off of short stories. And I think that really harmed me because for a long time, it was like if it wasn't, it was the book or bust. And so when I came back, I just remember like feeling this sense of like abundance and also of like joy with language I started writing, like I wrote this little sexy essays for a blog. Then I was like, Ooh, I'm, I'm good at writing little, little essays. Look at me, nonfiction writer. And then I went back to short stories. And anytime that I was having a hard time with the book, or if the book was with my agent and he was reading through the next version for feedback, I would just write a short story. And so right now I have like three separate books I'm working on. What a great
1: way to take the pressure off the second book is to just be writing during the 15 years that you're <laughs> (laughs) getting the first book ready and then like you don't have to because all the writers talk about it and then i wrote my second book and it was terrifying so now
2: you've got what not one but three one of the things that i like because i teach creative writing now and one of the things that i tell my students all the time is like just if you stay ready you don't have to get ready because right now like i have two beautiful short stories and an essay I don't know what's going to happen with them, but I'm not stressing it. I think there's going to be an opportunity where either someone asked me for it, or I have an opportunity, again, to just put it in the books that I'm working on. I'm working on a memoir, which is very painful. I think that will take a long time. I don't know if I can publish it. Members of my family are still alive. <laughs> so that might be one that will take 15 years. I don't know. Um, but I just, I just feel this sense of... I don't know, Abandon when it comes to writing. Like, I think my fear for 15 years was that I wasn't going to be able to do the story justice, that I wasn't going to be able to do my community justice, that, you know, in order for me to have any kind of a career as a writer, I would have to compromise what it means to be myself. And, you know, like we talked about before, I think so much of this journey has been an affirmation that like I'm really happy with who I am and I'm really happy with who I am as an artist and I just want to archive stages of me because I also think that's satisfying. I mean, we're talking about Angie Cruz before and how much I love her work and I've been reading her work as it comes out and from Soledad to How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water, I mean, just to see like that genius develop. Now, I'm not saying I'm a genius, you know, but I will say that I think... There's something really satisfying to me about allowing readers and allowing people to see me develop as a stronger artist over time.
1: I want to end by quoting you to you because you said something in an interview that I thought was incredible. And I want to give you a chance to talk about what you meant and how you get past it. The pressure to rectify systems invested in silencing the voices of marginalized writers brings with it a great deal of stress and pain into my process. How do you deal with that? And what did you mean by that?
2: I think any of us who are part of marginalized communities that are actively oppressed, that are being haunted, you know, it's a really scary time to be alive and like conscious. To me, I think anyone who's really aware of what's happening and how things have escalated even in the last five years in terms of like the rights that have been taken from us as women, as people of color... It's really frightening. And there was a time for me where I felt this pressure to have my writing speak directly to the oppression and to the pain. And it's not only isolating, but it's like bringing to my artwork and to my writing, which is the most joyful experience in my life. A lot of pressure to like be the change immediately, you know? And like, I actually don't think it's possible to do that. Like, I don't think that it's possible for us to make lasting, meaningful social change immediately. I think you have to understand that to be like a journey and for it to be, I will put my effort into it and hand it to you, hand it to my children, hand it to your children. And then together they will take the baton and continue toward equality and liberation, right? Freedom for people who are oppressed. And so part of what I meant by that is, you know, I think that there's so much pain that comes with telling the truth and I'm not going to shy away from it. I can't. I think all writers have a responsibility and an obligation to tell the truth and to put it on the page. But I also think there's a lot more joy and pleasure and humor that Also has to be part of it, and so you know, I had an opportunity to interview Nikki Giovanni a few years ago. I was running this festival with a dear friend, and I remember asking her. She had had a conversation with James Baldwin, where they were talking about, you know. Oh, James Baldwin! No, no, No. small, During our interview with her, she kept calling him like Jimmy, and I was like, "Oh my god, like I almost died!" Like, forgive me, no big deal. Uh, But
1: you you know, better than Baldy, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. Um, so, and she was talking about in that interview, which is like fascinating, you can Google it, it's on YouTube. But they were talking about like the means through which to like fight against oppression. And during my conversation with Nikki Giovanni, I said to her, like, what exactly is it that I'm supposed to do? Like, what is it that I should be doing right now to like make the world a better place? And she said, joy live joyfully, stay alive. And, you know, it was one of those moments where I was like, oh, I have young children, you know, at that time, there were like, it was the summer of 2020. So there was a, you know, all the protests against the murder of George Floyd. And, you know, I just remember feeling really helpless and feeling like I'm not doing my part, like just sending money places isn't enough. And in that moment where she was like, stay alive and live joyfully, I was like, I can do that. And in a way has really opened me up to like the joy that exists in being a writer. And like not giving into just telling stories about people that are like in crisis and in distress but also about pleasure and you know and I did that in this book like I tried to inject the book with humor and like the absurdities of life which I think really help us to like understand like humanity and human experience in a meaningful way
1: Cleves Natera, thank you so much for coming okay, <laughs> okay. i <I'm> laughing still <laughs> a few me. I really look forward to the next three books I really really do that'll be great Name is Natera, rapid fire question. Number one, lesser known book you recommend to everybody.
2: Um, I think everyone should read Anne Perry's The Street. It is a book about a young mother in Harlem trying to survive in a very hostile. And I have never read a book that's like so full of dread. Like every page you're like just waiting for everything to collapse and it keeps collapsing. Um, so I love that book. And it's it's a comedy. It's not a comedy. (laughs) Um, Most influential book in your life? The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. I was like a young kid still learning English when I first read that book. And, you know, I grew up in a home where there was so much violence and really terrible, sad. And everybody always pretended like it wasn't happening, even when there were bruises on my mother's face. And it seemed like the adults in my life had decided that whatever was personally happening in our homes wasn't really happening. And when I read that book, I remember thinking... Oh, it's true. It actually is happening. And it's not like our fault. Favorite book to read to your kids? Oh, my goodness. Uh, Snowy Day. I love that book. Crunch, crunch.
1: If I wasn't a writer, I would be? An architect.
2: Really? Yeah. Why? I love big buildings and I love the ways in which the imagination can Takes different shapes and forms, and so when I was really young, I wanted to like build buildings. I wanted to create buildings, and I was told by this hater teacher who wasn't even like a math teacher; she was a Spanish teacher, and she was like, "You can't be an architect because you're not good at math." Uh, <laughs> And, you know, like, I just, I was very impressionable at the time and I listened to her. Yeah, so I always, I love, I love architecture and I love staring at buildings. And then they always transform for me the landscape and my feeling about empty space. The way that I think about an empty page or like a blank page and what you can do with it by creating something that wasn't there before.
1: Hey, that teacher out there, there's no math in it, but she's a writer and she's wildly successful. So, nyan, 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 nyan. We stole this question from Stephen Colbert, but we always feel it's really illuminating. In five words, what would you like the rest of your life to be? Oh, five words. Uh,
2: Joyful. um, Delicious. Let's see. Profound. I would say transcendental. And then I, I think, I don't know, community minded.
0: Clavis Natera and Kate. You obviously liked her and you obviously liked the book.
1: I really did. I think, you know, again, it's a really interesting take on gentrification, very different from Sadiq Fafana. Gentrification is everywhere where we look these days. And also as the daughter of a mother, I think that this illuminate, again, I'm not a first generation family. That is a unique experience. But, you know, relationships between daughters and mothers are complicated. Yeah, you were there, too. Yeah, I'll acknowledge you. You were there, too. But relationships between mothers and daughters are complicated, and I thought this book spoke
0: very well to that. Well, I'm glad you identified yourself as the daughter of a mother, since every female in the world is, Uh, so it's not a very select (laughs) group.
1: Well, everyone has to come out of someone, but... You don't necessarily meet them. You know, who knows, you know, what your access to your mother was like, or maybe your mother wasn't such a great deal. Anyway.
0: I got it. Okay. All right. (laughs) All right. All right. Our bookstore this week is Bookends and Beginnings. It is a store in Evanston, Illinois, a town important to both Kate and me. Since I grew up there through the age of 12 and loved Evanston, and Kate went to Northwestern. Nina Barrett, she has an interesting background. She worked in an independent bookstore. Uh, then she went and got a journalism degree. She wrote some books, decided that wasn't going to be terribly remunerative. Then got a chef's degree at a culinary school, decided not to open a restaurant. She's very smart in that regard. Yes, yes. I was supposed to say, that's not a goldmine. Then got into food journalism. <laughs> but... Always had in her mind the romance of an independent bookstore. And there was one in Evanston that intrigued her, Nina Barrett. This store
3: had a cult following. It was like something out of Harry Potter. (laughs) You know, because you went down the alley, and there was a man who owned it who was sort of wizard-like, and you felt like the shelves could fall over on you at any moment because they were stacked so high with like these ancient books. So, in 2013, I heard that that store was going out of business and the space was becoming available, and out of nowhere rose this like, you know, I think I know how to run an independent bookstore. And I think that the time is right for them to start to start up again. Because at that point, Borders had gone out of business and Barnes and Noble really had, you know, decided to invest in all kinds of other things that weren't printed books. And I thought, this is the kind of, I'm going to create the kind of funky independent store that you would expect to find in a college town like Evanston. And so that's what I did.
1: It's <laughs> <So, laughs> quite a story. <laughs>
0: so a chef's degree, yes. a journalist. Yes. You worked in an independent bookstore. You bought an independent bookstore. What I'm missing. But there's just all sorts of ways to make millions and millions of dollars. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Has anyone told you what the what the saying is in the independent bookstore world? It's no. How do you make a small fortune in bookstores?
1: You start with a large fortune. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna ask, because you're in this college town, which is a sort of idiosyncratic town. I mean, I love it. And I have some great memories there. But there's some strange things about that town. But what would you describe? How would you describe your average customer? Well, do we have an average customer?
3: I don't know. You. It's kind of like owning cheers. It's kind of like dry <coughs> cheers. Like we don't get to drink and we don't get to serve alcohol. But we kind of have All these regulars and it could be I'm going to describe it more as a cast of characters than Mm. as any one
0: kind of character. And if I wandered in today and was lucky enough to find you behind the counter and said, I'm just looking for something to read, what would you put in my hand? If I said to you, what's your favorite book right now?
3: Okay, Oh, that's you know, that's like asking to choose between children. So if I could just I'm going to do it.
0: Two.
3: Can I have two? Sure. <laughs> okay. Um, Lauren Groff, The Matrix. This book really surprised me. She is known for writing very contemporary fiction. And this book is set in a monastery, in a convent, in the time of Eleanor of Aquitaine. And the central character is this very sort of, not quite unlikable, but very unlikely very tall woman who doesn't have any sense of godliness herself, but she gets sort of sent as a punishment, she thinks, to this falling down convent, where she then has to make a new life for herself. And she ends up reinventing the convent and reinvigorating it and getting all of the cranky nuns to buy into their function and create a real social matrix. And matrix comes from, you know, she's the mother. And it's just, it's so historically believable. You absolutely feel that it's, it's faithful to the time It's a great portrayal of a community of women, and I'm going to say her whole experience of coming to the Falling Down Convent and having to make it run is very much I identify with because it's like my experience of getting my Falling Down bookstore to run. Seriously. It is so, it's such a pleasure to read, but... I think I also have to mention, because we were gonna talk about, I think, some some more local things, Marrying the Ketchups. <laughs> which
1: isn't it a great
3: title? So this is by Jennifer Close, and it's a novel that opens the week the Cubs finally won the World Series. So at this moment of Enormous triumph for Chicago, where everybody's on this incredible high. And then we have the 2016 election. But the story is about a family owned restaurant. In Oak Park, which is the other Evanston of Chicago. So it's the suburb to the west that's very much like Evanston. And it's a family-owned restaurant, and the patriarch lives just long enough to see the Cubs win the World Series, and then he drops dead. That's not a spoiler alert. That happens, like, in the first couple pages. But the rest of it is about the two generations behind him in the family who have to decide whether it's worth it to them. To take over the family restaurant or not and they live all over the Chicago area and they have all kinds of entanglements with you know other places they might want to live and other people and it's really it's one of those books that just manages to be very funny but just like absolutely it goes straight to your heart as the characters struggle to figure out whether one of them is going to end up with
1: the restaurant or not. This is great that ended up by the way
0: you just sold me a book. It's a pleasure to talk to you Nina Barrett. All the best, may your bookstore prosper, and you never have to go back to being a chef, an author, a journalist, and all the other things that you suffered through before you got to your real love, the bookstore.
1: And also, just because I'm never going to be able to say this on the show, probably like ever again, go you Northwestern! Nina Barrett at Bookends and Beginnings on Sherman uh, in Evanston, Illinois. I really wish you had been there uh, when I was there proud graduating class 1998 go cats i wish you'd been there when i was there i think i maybe 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 would have spent a little less time in bars and a little more time in bookstores
0: catherine (laughs) catherine this is not a confessional it's a podcast it's a podcast anyway it was good to talk to (laughs) nina barrett we'll have a final thought from clavis notera after we remind you who's responsible for this podcast
1: the bookcase is a production of abc audio produced by david canada in conjunction with surecam productions brenda salinas baker is our senior producer liz alessi is our executive producer and we give special thanks to josh cohen elizabeth russo nania mclean and cameron Chertavian.
2: you know this is what i my last sentence i wanted to be here i i think the whole world is invested in us losing hope And I think it's really important for everyone to remember that we actually do have the capacity to change our lives and our circumstances by being true to ourselves.